The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Where's Marina? Who? Doesn't ring a bell. How could you miss her? She's tall, athletic, blonde. Oh, one of the entertainment directors. I believe she's getting Kess a hydro cell lesson. Harry, Tuvok. The lake is perfect today. Hello, Harry. Hi, Marina. We were just talking about you. You were? Marina said what an excellent student you were. She's a great instructor. Ready to get your ears wet? Vulcans do not hydrosail. Oh, why not? Lieutenant Tuvok prefers the solitude of his own quarters and a game of Calto. I'm sure we can do better than that. I'm going back on duty, thanks. You're welcome. There's a volleyball game starting down in the sand. Mr. Kim and I would prefer some conversation. Would you care to join us? All right. I tried to reverse curl this morning. I think I pulled a tendon. Feel that. It's like a knot. I'm sure it is. Are you two friends? Yes. No. We're colleagues. I respect Mr. Kim for his intelligence and his integrity, and I assume he holds me in the same regard. So Vulcans don't hydrosail, and they don't have friends? We have fellowships and associations, but without the emotional dimension humans experience. Hmm. You and I are friends, aren't we? Um, yeah. Good. Chakotay to Tuvok and Kim. Report to the bridge. Acknowledged. We're on our way. There's a luau tonight. You're coming, aren't you? Both of you? No. Yes. You've got to stop doing that. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 9th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we will be with you from now till noon. It's not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today, where you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. With Greece apparently in the economic frying pan, we'll be taking a second look at a, and update on what we began last week on the show, beginning shortly and then extending into the second half of our show today. When we'll also be taking another but not so unrelated look at the relationship between religion and state and its consequences, and the local controversy about the banning of prayer at official functions. Last week's show which also encompassed a discussion about the Greek gods and ancient Greek culture, led me to appreciate a perspective that perhaps I've neglected too much. The source of philosophical knowledge and the co conditions necessary to achieve it. You know, it turns out it's a vicious circle. We need freedom to pursue knowledge so that we can pursue freedom. <laughs> Each is a necessary condition, though perhaps not necessarily sufficient on its own. I thought I'd take a few moments today to reflect upon and integrate some of the big lessons we learned from our show on Greece last week. <clears throat> the most significant lesson for me personally was brought to us thanks to the insights of philosopher Daniel Robinson, who we heard last week, essentially saying that 
Organized thought and philosophy arose in ancient Greece because it was allowed to. It was not only permitted, but encouraged. And the key to that uniqueness of Greece's reputation as being the quote-unquote inventor of philosophy itself can be attributed in great part to the fact that ancient Greeks were religiously secular. Theirs was one of the fewest of states that had no official state religion and therefore no official doctrine with which to block inquiring minds, and I think that was largely a key to the whole issue. So, um, in the context of ancient Greece, having been the birthplace of philosophy, along with its accompanying um, array of myths and legend, what appears ancient to most today is, uh, you know, almost eternally perpetual and current and modern. As human beings, we've been debating and arguing about the same things for as long as recorded history almost allows us to perceive. While on one level, you could argue that nothing seems to change or history repeats itself, on another there have been major advancements, which are only the only keys that I can find to end the perpetual cycle of irresolvable differences and disagreements between people. Today I'm going to attempt to both separate and integrate two distinctive philosophical dimensions, and that's the personal and the individualistic, or the, the social, and or the group, if you will. We sometimes forget or overlook the fact that philosophy is, uh, well, not necessarily only about solving the world's major crisis, even though it, it, it's indispensable in doing so, but philosophy is also about living our daily lives. And we don't spend the average day voting or getting into political debates, unless that's your job, <laughs> or perhaps even otherwise concerning ourselves with public affairs, unless, of course, you live in Greece or a country or a province that's starting to look like Greece. Then such conversations become unavoidable. But let's avoid those conversations for the moment, at least for a few minutes, and look at the study and discipline of philosophy as an entirely human endeavor. It's, it's one that separates man from the beasts and even the most intelligent of beasts. Philosophy encompasses a lot more than mankind's relationship to the stars and cosmos or to, or to the nature of our very metaphysical existence, but also our relationship to each other on a personal basis in terms of individuality and individual sovereignty being preserved within the realm of friendships and fellowships. One philosopher I mention frequently is Scottish philosopher John McMurray, whose very namesake is associated with organizations of fellowship and friendship, specifically fellowship and friendship in freedom. McMurray wrote a phenomenal book called Conditions of Freedom, from which I've stolen many a quote over the, year, over the years. In addition to his other works, most notably Reason and Emotion, which uh, will also have an impact on our theme today. For McMurray, of course, Religion is both about friendship and about rationality on a personal level. Having established that framework, his greater uh, thesis suggests that properly functioning societies operate essentially on the same principles, friendship in the form of fellowship, and of course, rationality. Now, nobody I know is actually opposed to the ideas of friendship or fellowship. Sometimes, though, that fellowship and friendship is misdirected in the form of what is perceived as altruism or seen as helping others. And when does that happen? Well, when, whenever altruism especially is used to cover up other motivations and interests, or in other words, 
almost most of the time. Altruism and charity are two different things. You know, perhaps uh, Tuvok the Vulcan in our Star Trek Voyager opener today was being a bit too picky about his distinctions between being a friend or an associate or fellow with Harry Kim than the definitions of those words would normally demand. But I think there was a reason. And let's face it, I, you know, I also think he was being a bit of a jerk. He was, in fact, saying that Ensign Harry Kim was not his friend in order to disassociate himself from Kim, whose emotional state was utterly distasteful to him at the time. Hey, I'm not really with this guy, I'm just here to help him, and thus demonstrate my intellectual and moral superiority, you know, <laughs> Mr. Altruism himself. Now, there are a lot of friends like that around, but even if, you know, even when they're being jerks on one level, that doesn't really necessarily imply that they're not really, in fact, still friends on many other levels. Uh, just watch any episode of The Big Bang Theory and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Those guys call each other everything from jerks to douche to douches to, you know, on a regular basis and yet <laughs> remain friends. Uh, the word friend is defined in my handy Funk and Wagnalls as, quote, one who is personally well known by oneself and for whom one has warm regard or affection and also intimate. However, friend is also defined as one with whom one is on speaking terms with, an associate or an acquaintance, and again, as one who belongs to the same nation, party, etc., as oneself, and also as, quote, one with whom one is united in purpose or cause, etc., and once again as a patron or a supporter. All of those terms refer to the word friend, and that covers a lot of ground. Friends, Romans, countrymen, goes the famous Caesarian greeting to the masses. It bears emphasizing that friendship does not necessarily equate with or require agreement on any particular issue or topic, nor does love, we all know that. Friendship does, however, require this, a sharing of values. Whenever the level or hierarchy of those values is, um, or whatever the, the, the level and hierarchy of those values is, that too becomes the level of friendship. I would call the first definition, the one with, uh, you know, warm regard or affection or intimacy, as being within the personal realm. I would consider the other definitions, um, associates, fellowships, etc., as belonging to the public realm of friendship. And that's the broader theme of our show today, friendship expressed from the individual level to the national and international level. Indeed, the European Union is a fellowship or association of a very specific sort. And despite what we see in the economic conflict between Greece and the EU, the whole argument is really one between friends on a fellowship level. And I think you have to keep that in mind in order to keep the big picture clear. The terms and implications of that fellowship can often be a factor that overrides the economic considerations, though even though those considerations might not always be in everyone's best interests. Now, we all know the saying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. But, you know, there's a few other sayings, too. He who borrows money to play the tune may not have a pipe to play on. And there's another old axiom about money that roughly states friends should never lend friends money. Maybe the European situation with Greece is a perfect collective example of that individualistic principle exercised through the fellowship of, of, of uh, the European Union. 
And of course, and he who borrows from or lends to a friend is risking that friendship if that relationship depends upon repayment. A lot of what is happening in Greece and other countries for that matter, countries on the same path but just further down the road, is the consequence of what Ayn Rand so often warned us about. Altruism, which is again, not the same thing as charity. You know, I heard a a female protester on a radio news report the other day who suggested that we should all be focused on the humanity of the situation and not on the economic matters when it comes to what we should do about the Greek financial crisis. Now, <laughs> you know, I'm, there I am thinking, of course, her kind of thinking or non-thinking is the very thinking that has led everything that's happened in the whole uh, entire Greek and Euro culture. It, it, it's the whole issue. In fact, I heard a former MP speaking on the radio on June 29th with Andy Utman. I didn't catch his his full name. I know his first name was Jim. But uh, he remarked that Greece has, quote, been a culture of giving and that this culture has led to pension issues, you know, including early retirements as early as 45 to 50 years of age, and that this is part of what's coming back to haunt them now. The country is now hundreds of billions of euros in debt, a debt which can never be repaid, incidentally, so hopefully it was mostly borrowed from their real friends, <laughs> and not the friends like Vladimir Putin, who's been lurking in the background with his oh-so-friendly offer to help Greece if they can't get help from the EU. And still people talk about, uh, you know, humanity without thinking about humanity in any meaningful way. Their concerns are hollow and meaningless when they say we should not talk about economics, or worse, when they start blaming capitalism for the whole problem, as we'll see as our show progresses. Now, it's interesting, John McMurray, the Scottish philosopher, wrote very succinctly and wisely, when you begin to live to please people, you destroy emotional sincerity. Inner integrity becomes impossible. Dependence and freedom are incompatible. Again, let's remember that dependence is not fellowship, which would be more like an interdependence. And he writes, uh, no human being can have rights in another, and no human being can grant another rights in himself or herself. Now, that's an interesting observation, because he's talking about rights here. True rights, by their very nature, are said to be inalienable, which means they cannot be possessed by another. Nobody besides you can possess your right to life, your right to liberty, or your right to property. You know, someone could share your property with your consent, but so long as it's your property, they cannot have a right in it that would supersede your own sovereignty. No one can possess your right to liberty other than you. I mean, you, you could be sitting in a jail cell. Your liberty ceases to exist. It doesn't become the possession of another person who happens to be free. Ah, I've got your liberty. No, you don't. You have your liberty. He has his jail cell. And it doesn't work that way. So you can't trade those things. That's why they're inalienable. And, of course, another person can't possess your right to life any more than he or she can possess your life itself. They could deprive you of either your right or of your life, but they would not be able to run away with those things as if, you know, as if they possessed them. And continues McMurray, yet freedom is the basis of all moral conduct. And then he applies that principle to a personal and specifically sexual relationships, though it's a broader implication. And he says, a mutual sexual attraction <clears throat> is no proper basis for human relationships between a man and a woman. It's an organic thing, not personal. What then is a proper basis? Love is between any two persons. Love may or may not include sexual attraction. It may express itself in sexual desire, but sexual desire itself is not love. 
Desire itself is quite compatible with personal hatred or contempt or indifference because it treats its object not as a person but as a means to its own satisfaction. Does the distinction between enjoying yourself in your friend's company and enjoying your friends seem too subtle a philosopher's distinction, he asks. I assure you that the distinction is the root of the difference between morality and immorality, between what he calls love and lust. Paradoxical as it may seem, the attitude of mind which sees in the body and the passions a source of evil and something to be subdued by reason is the attitude of mind which is expressed in science, materialism, the love of power, and the denial of religion." End quote, which all happen to be uh, uh, issues that we'll be dealing with as our show progresses. Now, to love is to value. Lust, of course, is not only about sexual desire, but about an overwhelming desire for or after any object of desire, living or inanimate, including money, power, and, of course, the control of others. It also sounds an awful lot like Mr. Tuvok in our upcoming Voyager audio bites, in which he attempts to persuade Mr. Kim to retreat from the clutches of his infatuation, while simultaneously falling into the same clutches. Greetings, Mr. Vulcan. No, thank you. I've done a great deal of ethnographic research on the Polynesian cultures of Earth. The flowered garland, or lei, is said to represent the flowering of love. It's a marvelous tradition, don't you think? Marvelous. Tuvok, I'm glad to see you here. I would never disobey an order, Captain, no matter how burdensome. There's a difference between an order and a suggestion. The evening's young, Lieutenant. Let's mingle. Vulcans do not... Curious. What's that? If you will excuse me. A common error among novice players. By placing the Tahan on opposite sides of the Kalto, you are attempting to introduce a spatial balance, a strategy that will most certainly fail. Why? Kalto is not about striving for balance. It is about finding the seeds of order, even in the midst of profound chaos. May I? Please. How beautiful. Kalto is not about beauty. I understand, but it's still beautiful. Did you learn to play on Vulcan? Yes. From the age of five, I took lessons from a master. I thought you might enjoy having an opponent. Playing alone must get a little predictable sometimes. You are perceptive. Yes, I am. Extremely so. Aloha, Miss. No, thank you. You're the only one here not wearing a garland. Given the decor, it, it seems somehow excessive. I don't believe you. I beg your pardon. I think you're trying to isolate yourself and make a public protest at the same time. Explain. You didn't want to be here in the first place. Being the only one without a lay sets you apart from the others, allowing you to symbolically maintain your solitude. And since everybody can see that you're the only one without a lay, you're letting them know that you'd rather be somewhere else. Or logic is impeccable 
the excitement of the water. The danger. Being tossed around by the wind and the waves. But at the same time, feeling like I'm in control. The illusion of control. That's exactly right. Because no one can control the wind and the waves. But for a few moments when you're on the water and the ride is perfect, the feeling is that you can. Do you ever feel that? No. Never? Don't you have an imagination? If by imagination you mean the ability to spontaneously generate images within my mind, then yes, I have a highly developed imagination, as do all of my race. All right. Imagine this, that you, with your logic and your reason, are skimming atop endless waves of emotion. You believe you're in control, but you know that control is an illusion. You believe that you understand the depths beneath you. But that, too, is an illusion. I can see why Ensign Kim finds you compelling. I can see why Harry admires and respects you. Because it's obvious that he does. And so do I. I must return to my quarters. Please stay. I've never met anyone like you. I must admit, I share that conclusion. You are a unique individual. A unique individual, indeed. <clears throat> you know, when Tuvok replied, your logic is impeccable in response to Marina's observation that he's trying to isolate himself while making a public protest, what he really, had, you know, meant was, I admit I would rather not be here, and yes, I was publicly protesting to everyone else. But he was also saying, I think I'm falling in love with you, but I don't want to. <laughs> After all, what does a Vulcan value more than logic itself, eh? Yet he refuses to acknowledge his respect and admiration for Marina as love. And it's true, you know, th some of those conversations in that, that particular episode of Voyager were just great. I it's true that we cannot control the wind and the waves, uh, green philosophies aside. But properly contexted, there is no illusion of control when it comes to hydrosailing the waves. The control is of the self. And even in the face of a wipeout, you would still have to be in some kind of control to pull out of it. In fact, it's funny, when it comes to control, isn't it curious how we always view control usually as being about controlling something else or controlling others rather than self-control? And that is the most illusionary of all senses of control, is trying to control others. You know, when she says, you believe you're in control, but you know that your control is an illusion. You believe that you understand the depths beneath you, but that too is an illusion. That could very well be an apt description for what the Greek population was hoping to feel through its referendum vote this past Sunday. I have to thank Robert Vaughn for putting me onto this item from yesterday's uh, Toronto Sun. Uh, Greeks rejected financial colonialism by Tarak Fatah, um, posted July 7th in which uh, he basically summarizes the whole situation. But what was interesting is that he quotes uh, Adonis Artemakis, president of the Greek community of Toronto, 
who said, uh, you know, Greece has spoken. Its people will not be held hostage by Europe's banking system. And he says, we're not going to be uh, alone in facing this new form of fiscal colonialism. Look what the banks did to Iceland, Ireland, Spain, etc. And he says, I hope people see the need for governments to balance the greed of invisible capitalism with the need of ordinary people and small businesses. If we don't, then capitalism will have eaten the goose that lays the golden egg. We need the compromise between capitalism and socialism, he says. And he also quotes French economist Thomas Piketty as saying, when I hear the Germans say that they maintain a a very moral dealing with debt and firmly believe that debts must be repaid, and then I think that's a big joke. Germany's a country that's never paid its debts. It's in no position to give lessons to other countries, end quote. <clears throat> well, the mere language being misused here with the outrageously self-destructive terms like invisible capitalism is all it takes to keep the Greeks in perpetual poverty. What I want to know is this. If, if the capitalism's invisible then what's the visible part of the economy? And why aren't you talking about that? Oh, because that's socialism and that's what they support. And why is this so-called capitalism invisible in the first place? Because it doesn't exist in Greece or in Europe in the way that we speak of it here. Businesses and banks are not capitalism. They operate under the restrictive rules and regulations that were drawn up by the socialists. Then the businesses and banks are socialistic when they're under that. You know, they can't help it. But they're not the source of these variants. Only the governments can be. And there's that word compromise again. A compromise between socialism and capitalism? A compromise between life and death? Between immoral and more immoral? Between right and wrong? Between consent and coercion? In any compromise between good and evil, evil is always the winner. The good has nothing to gain from the evil. The evil has everything to gain from the good. Which is why people calling for evil, the use of force by government in, in this case, always want to compromise. The compromiser, when it comes to morality and capitalism, you know, and capitalism is a moral issue, don't forget that, it's not an economic issue, does more harm almost than the evil itself, I'm thinking. And how can capitalism possibly eat the goose that lays the golden egg? Capitalism is the goose that lays the golden eggs. And consider the moral implication from the point of view of the person making the statement that we need to compromise between capitalism and socialism. Well, if capitalism's about greed, why do you want to balance greed with anything to begin with? You shouldn't even want any greed there, would you? Capitalism is not about greed or even self-interest as such. It's a system where coercion in the marketplace is prohibited by governments. There's nothing to balance. Greed is all about wanting to live at the expense of someone else without their consent. To ask that, quote, I hope people see the need for governments to balance the greed of invisible capitalism with the need of ordinary people and small businesses, end quote, is simply to ask that the government pick sides between borrowers and lenders and to balance one group's greed with the other group's greed. The real issues are never about greed versus generosity or individualism, uh, or individualism rather versus altruism, but about greed versus greed. In the moral climate of altruism, the guy who has the money is that, is that guy who's, you know, the, the one who, want, who has the money. He's the guy who's the moral bad guy in this, right? And the guy, and he's called the guy who's greedy and therefore immoral and inconsiderate. Now, now the greedy guy who has no money but wants it given to him because he needs it, all of a sudden he's placed on a moral high ground, which is completely inappropriate any way you can, you can think about it. And that, in a very simple nutshell, is the very process that has put Greece into the economic frying pan. 
In a socialist environment when, you know, where economic coercion and central government controls are the order of the day, even rational self-interest is forced to become a form of greed because everyone lives at everyone else's expense. You haven't got a choice, to be honest. So it's a terrible situation. We're going to be looking at it shortly. Human behavior, even when on a path to self-destruction, is easily predictable when viewed in an objective philosophical light. From personal feelings to the collective emotions of Greeks in this past Sunday's referendum, the predictable consequences and their very predictability often do not appear to have any influence or effect on their consciously chosen inevitability. So when we return from our break, we'll take another look at Greece in its own frying pan. Who's really going to get burned? As I predicted, your responses were as formulaic as a mathematical equation. What do you mean? Consider the expression on your face when Neelix did not recall Morena. Annoyance. That's not true. It is quite true. At that moment, Neelix was functioning in Vulcan terms as the Sulak, the third party who, by his very lack of interest, trivializes your own. I guess it really did bother me. And the arrival of Kess with Morena then precipitated in you the Konar, the feeling of being completely exposed. I was embarrassed. I was sure Kess would take one look at my face and know exactly what I was feeling. And when Morena placed your hand on her stressed tendon. Let's not even talk about that. Bridge. It's all so predictable. That's just what I've been trying to get you to perceive. long night, Watson, but a productive one. I believe I have deduced Moriarty's plan. You're kidding. But this man is named Andre Becerra. His mother is presently the Speaker of Parliament of the Republic of Macedonia. She's a noted reformer, popular figure. Mr. Becerra himself, something of a favorite son in his homeland. So why is Moriarty interested in a couple of Macedonian politicians? Andre Becerra is not a politician, not yet. He works as a vascular surgeon here in New York, serves as an unofficial diplomat when needed. Now, I refer you to a map of the Balkan Peninsula. This is the Republic of Macedonia, fledgling democracy and applicant for full membership to the European Union. Biggest obstacle to its candidacy is its ongoing dispute with its neighbor, Greece, over the very name Macedonia. I thought Macedonia was a part of Greece. Macedonia is a region in Greece, birthplace of Alexander the Great, area of enormous historical import. So you can imagine Greece's chagrin when Yugoslavia broke apart and one small new nation declared itself the Republic of Macedonia. Two of my cousins both wanted to name their sons Henry. It was a big thing at Thanksgiving. What are you getting at? Well, as long as Macedonia insists on calling itself Macedonia, Greece has pledged to remain intractably opposed to admitting them to the EU. However, Andre Becerra's mother recently brokered a compromise on the issue. In a few days, the current Republic of Macedonia is going to vote on whether to join the EU as the Republic of New Macedonia. So they just added the word new. It worked. Referendum is expected to pass handily. So this is all very fascinating in an NPR kind of way, but I don't see how your nemesis is going to look at all this and see an opportunity. Which is why you make a much better companion than you do nemesis. It's all about currency. This is a Macedonian dinar. 
you just had this lying around. If the Macedonian referendum passes, the currency will switch to the euro. The dinar will become obsolete, utterly worthless. And yet, not 48 hours ago, a Swiss bank, acting on behalf of an anonymous client, purchased an enormous position in the currency. Why would anyone buy into a currency that's about to become extinct? They would not. Not unless they plan to manipulate events to prevent Macedonia from joining the EU. Imagine the uproar. Native of Greece, someone known to make contributions to nationalist causes, murdered Macedonia's favorite son on the eve of the vote. All passions would be inflamed. The vote to rename the country would fail and the dinar would remain the currency of Macedonia. Its value would soar. So Moriarty kidnapped the Norwell's daughter to force him to kill this man. Also, she could make some money on a currency bet. Nearly a billion dollars. Let's say we go stop this bitch. <laughs> Boy, that was from the television series Elementary, of course, and where fact and fiction go separate ways in the complexities of what we just heard would be rather difficult to disentangle. Pretty much everything we just heard about Macedonia and Greece is not far off the mark from what quick research I uncovered on Wikipedia. The, the, the definitely fictional part, I hope, <laughs> was the specific murder investigation upon which Sherlock Holmes and Watson were embarked. But uh, all the elements of the past referendum held in Greece were present in that fictional account, aired at least two or three years ago. You know, Macedonia, Greece, the EU, a referendum, a currency manipulation. So go figure. Obviously, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras must have been watching that episode on the day he decided to call the referendum. So, they voted no on Sunday, illustrating my argument last week that when it comes to democracies and voting, not only can anything happen, but... Pride most often goeth before the financial fall, with economic logic and argument being on the side of a yes vote, Greeks nevertheless voted no. But to what, you know? Friends should never lend money to friends unless they don't expect to be paid back. And Putin is not a friend, but will do everything to position himself as such, so always beware of Putin. Saw just a devastating article in the Free Press, I think it was yesterday, by Matthew Fisher, who pretty well summarized the whole... Greek situation. He said at best it was a a fyric victory. Uh, Creditors were left unamused and unmoved. Greece will still have to accept the conditions of its erstwhile partners or it will surely be kicked out of the Eurozone and go far deeper deeper into the quicksand and mud than it's in now. And he goes on to talk about how there is a perverse schizophrenia that prevailed across Greece. He sees on the one hand, here's all these closed banks, closed for the foreseeable future, and people are outside the banks betting on how long the banks will last before they run out of money, and most were guessing Tuesday or Wednesday. And at the same time, there's a party atmosphere that reigns throughout much of the downtown, and everybody's celebrating this, this coming disaster. And he says, meanwhile, while this is all going on in Greece, over in Europe, they're all sitting there in total disbelief. And he says, quote, it was an affront to the 18 democracies that share the euro with Greece and have been uh, fronting at tens of billions of euros for years. And Greece was dancing on the way to its own grave. Germany is on the hook for 89 billion euros of Greece's still mushrooming debt. And it's interesting, German commentators attacked Merkel for having done too much to help Greece or not enough to punish it. There is that altruism coming into play. 
And a lot of people are talking about this could be the end of the euro. You know, this could be a bigger issue than a lot of us are suspecting. And I think some people are beginning to, uh, you know, clue into that fact. It's, uh, the, Greece is asking to be forgiven for a huge, huge vote, or, or amount of money, rather. Now, it's interesting that what's been happening up until now, apparently Greeks have been hoarding money and, and doing all sorts of currency manipulations of their own, even borrowing money to get euros and then put the euros on their mattress. And at something like a rate of $1.1 billion a week, this has been going on for a while. So, you know, they all saw it coming. It wasn't just something that came up on them and... Uh, and, you know, oh, wow, geez, I didn't see that one coming. But a lot of them have been ready for it and have been, have been really working hard to, uh, to organize themselves in that regard. So, as you can see, they went through this vote, and now here they are with uh, nothing's changed, just like I said last week. So, as I mentioned at the opening of our show, organized thought arose in ancient Greece because it was allowed to, in great part to the fact that ancient Greece... Uh, Greeks were religiously secular. That was one of the unique states that had no official state religion. And so getting on to the next part of our program here now, because having a state religion in and of itself, this hasn't really got much to do with the Greek, Greek issue. We just have to wait and see how that works its way out. But um, having a state religion in, of its, in and of itself would have to have a greatly restrictive effect on both the collection of knowledge and the integration of that knowledge into a broader perspective, especially if that truth or perspective in any way conflicted with the official state religion or doctrine. Whether Islam, Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, or atheist, yes, atheist, all official state doctrines must, by their very nature and purpose of existence, stifle objective knowledge or be certain to monopolize that knowledge and keep it from as many people as possible. And there's an irony in that observation because over history, often when... Um, various religions acted in opposition to the states or in the midst of chaotic political conditions, they became the repositories of knowledge, protecting that knowledge in the forming of writing to art and artifacts from those who would actively seek to destroy it. In today's world, ISIS, I guess, is an extreme example of religiously wrapped and religiously warped philosophy attacking knowledge and the inevitable values of freedom that knowledge demands. The Vatican is becoming another example, too, and we've talked about that with its uh, you know, anti-capitalist views and getting into the whole green issue. So I got to thinking about how some societies manage to integrate wildly differing cultures and or individuals with widely differing views in order to create a true civilization, which is by definition an association of individuals in which the use of initiatory, violent, non-defensive and non-consensual force is prohibited. In a civilization, the use of defensive force remains with both the citizen and the state, while the use of retaliatory force is delegated generally exclusively to the state. Only the protection of life, liberty, and property are justifications for the use of force in a free society, and that's a fundamental principle of freedom. Now, it's interesting that the ancient Greeks seem to have largely solved at least one problem that still seems to elude many cultures of today. It was their attitude of being religiously secular, which is how I would summarize the key message delivered by philosopher D Daniel Robinson on our show last week. Um, Greece had no official state religion, which uh, may well have been a necessary, though perhaps insufficient on its own, uh, condition for the study and discipline of philosophy to develop. So um, 
And that, too, is an issue of today in the 21st century, the issue of public prayers within official government functions, which has once again become a focus of public attention and debate. And what we're about to hear is from the movie Starship Troopers 3, Marauder. Now, I know Robert Heinlein wrote the original Star Trip, uh, Starship Troopers, on which the first of the movies was based. And I have to say one thing about the movie, which we're about to hear from some audio bites from. When it was over, it actually left me thinking about a lot of interesting issues, not the least of which was, uh, did I even like the ending of the movie? And did I agree with the decision the government made on the subject of God? The movie is Starship Troopers 3, Marauder, and it's my understanding that this episode was never released in the theaters, only on specialty TV networks and on DVD. I've seen all of the Starship Troopers movies, and I personally found this one to be the best of the bunch, just because it engaged me a little more than, than usual. And um, this one had a lot more substance than the others, and a lot less of screaming and attacking giant bugs, although they were there, than its pre predecessors. Pre predecessors. Jolene Blaylock, again, appears as Captain Beck, plays the role of the very grounded and objective starship trooper who slowly comes to realize that she's increasingly on her own as the troopers around her slowly succumb to religious beliefs and begin failing to defend themselves from their enemy. They choose to pray instead of taking action. And the uh, funny thing I found about this, this whole movie was that the 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 environment, the political environment that they were in was very much like, like Firefly. I couldn't get around that. The social and state dynamic of this movie was practically identical. You have this semi-benign fascist government that suppresses individualism and independence of the outer colonies, uh, one called the Federation and Starship Troopers, the Alliance, of course, and Firefly, though these two federations are completely different in ideology than the, again, similarly named Federation of the Star Trek universe. But there's a bug in the logic of this religious epic, and quite literally, but unknown to the protagonists until the end of the movie. And um, so let's tune in briefly to witness the transformation of a um, fictional um, future world of Starship Troopers uh, from a society that originally bans any practices of religion and beliefs in deities to a society that demands religion and a belief in a deity. Um, from ancient Greece to the future world of starship troopers and back to present here in Canada, the controversy is the same. What is the proper relationship, if any, between church and state? If you're against the war, you're against us. That's what a federal judge said today when he declared that hanging is absolutely good enough for anyone who threatens the morale of the Federation. And death. Execute them all. This is a very simple ruling. People need to watch what they say. Admiral Enolo Fid, Division Chief, Fleet Intelligence, voiced another concern today from her headquarters at Terran Command. The revival of religious worship here and in the outer colonies will not be tolerated if it leads to sedition or in any other way destabilizes our war effort. Another day, another peace rally in the outer colonies. The Federation has taken advantage! But this time it's different because of Elmo Ghanif. Hey, I'm a citizen! Decorated veteran turned pacifist and now the leader of a growing coalition of citizens who question the Federation's administration of the Arachnid conflict. And count it! Why? I found my answers in faith. And I have faith in God! 
people. Peace at any price is a human right. And there are other costs, too. Defeat at Rokusan has fueled the anti-war movement, resulting in the deaths of 144 outer colony students and religious protesters. Would you like to know more? Who's to say there's not an army out there? Oh, God. I didn't see anything. Probably a scout. We need to get off this beach pronto, people. You leave the rescue pod? You want your back to the water when these bugs show up for child be my guest, Doc. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give it a break. Everyone's got a right to say what they want. Sure, as long as they keep it to themselves. Saddle up. We're moving out. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And the God talk! You're wrong, Captain Beck. God is everywhere, surrounding us. Excuse me, sir? All of us search for God in our own way, whether we know it or not. Do you really believe that, sir? Yes, Holly, I do. I had no idea that you were one of us. All right, well, all of you guys can go look for God. I'm heading for the Fleet Marine Lander. They've got weapons, maybe even a comm that works, and it's only about 100 clicks away. Hey, Doc. When did you get the religion? I wouldn't call it religion, per se. It's spiritual. It's different. Yeah, two months ago, I received a call in the middle of the night. I hadn't seen him for a week. Told me he'd been in the desert. They'd been tested. He wasn't himself. Go on. Well, every man, even great men, experience moments of doubt when they're tired and afraid. Afraid of what? He told me that this was a war that would never end. That if we stay this course, the bugs will and must destroy the human race. So he's lost his nut. <sighs> He, uh, he had an episode. I gave him a sedative. The next day he told me not to worry, and he talked to God. Doc, if I told you I was talking to God, would you clear me for flight? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Is the SM unfit for command? I find this a very uncomfortable conversation, Captain. If I need to assume command, I'm gonna need your help, because the others won't understand. So, you know you got religion. What are you talking about? General, there's something I think you should see. This is surveillance footage of Anoki with a brain bug. We just recently discovered it. He's psychically connected with it. They communicate. We now believe this brain allowed itself to be captured, to provide intelligence from the heart of the Federation. And Anoki used the brain to commune with this behemocoital, a bug he regards as God. Yes, Wilkinson informs proof of my faith. Then we can discuss the terms of peace. Uh, Anoki is responsible for Oku-san? Mm-hmm. He had the codes to shut down the fences. He made a pact for the bug to render Oku-san defenseless. And in light of his, uh, conversion, he's become an asset to the bug and a tremendous liability for us.
In related news, peace terrorist Elmo Ghanif and 51 of his closest friends were hung this morning in what many believe to be the all-time record for executions in a single day since the 21st century. But they can't silence you! The Federation and all of you! You will not take my voice! You will not take me! You will not take away! Across the Federation, federal experts agree that A, God exists after all, B, he's on our side, and C, he wants us to win. And there's even more good news, believers, because it's official. God's back, and he's a citizen too. Bowing to a rising popularity all across the Federation, Sky Marshal Fid declares that while religion is acceptable, peace is not. <laughs> oh boy, how ironically consistent. Though most people would not see faith and force as natural partners, despite the weight of evidence that demonstrates this principle throughout human history. Poor Elmo Donut there, the poor guy's sitting in a wheelchair with a noose being put around his neck, moving from faith in God and peace at any price as, as a human right to the hanging noose. It gives the term hoisted by his own petard a completely new meaning, a literal one. Now, I have no intentions of being a spoiler on just how the conversion from no God to yes God actually resulted from the experience of the Starship Troopers, although the key fundamentals could be found in what we just heard. But the creepiest character in the movie, <clears throat> for me anyway, was not the scary giant bug insects or the scary state tyranny, but the guy who believed he was talking to God, and turns out he was interpreting all of his psychic experience, uh, experiences with the bugs, you know, um, in Christian terms, but the effect and consequences were nevertheless the same. And hence, with a war effort at stake, the Federation converts from official atheism to official deism, knowing that that would make their job easier. So what does all of this crazy sci-fi fictional stuff got to do with the real world here in Canada today? Well, apparently, and this is the headline from... Uh, uh, I think this is the uh, National Post. More than half of Canadians agree with Supreme Court ruling that bans prayer in public life uh, by Joseph Breen. More than half of Canadians support a ban on prayer in public life, such as council meetings or legislative sessions, as was recently imposed by the Supreme Court of Canada. And then they... They asked him a lot of questions about various options, and here's what he's reported. The least acceptable idea for rotating was for rotating specific prayers, Jewish on Monday, for example, Muslim Tuesday, Christian on Wednesday, which only 30% of the people found acceptable. I understand that's the way they do it in the Ontario legislature, by the way. Um, far more, 52% approved of a generic prayer to God that did not mention any specific faith. But a sizable minority, even including non-religious people, wants to hang on to these traditions apparently for their own sake. Despite an increasingly secularist view when it comes to public prayer and God in the public sphere, there is a desire to hang on to these traditions. More than 40% approved of a Christian prayer referring to Jesus, and some of these people were atheists. Quote, despite an increasingly secularist view when it comes to public prayer and God in the public sphere, there is a desire to hang on to these traditions, end quote, said uh, Sashi Kurl, senior vice president of the Angus Reid Institute. So uh, apparently Quebec and British Columbia were most supportive of the ban with Saskatchewan and Atlantic Canada in strongest disagreement. Two-thirds of younger Canadians support it compared to fewer than half of those over 55. 
one of the most striking findings, though, was on a similar idea of removing the line, God keep our land glorious and free from the national anthem. But only 7% of respondents agreed with the idea of doing that, uh, getting rid of that God reference. Colby Kosh, in his June 9th editorial, responded to this particular uh, um, uh, survey, and he said that, uh, um, he, he says, this time I stand with the masses. According to Angus, a slight majority of Canadians approve of the April Supreme Court decision that outlawed the recitation of Catholic prayer at meetings, etc., that lawsuit began with when some cranky village atheist, and I use this term as an epithet of praise, he says, went before a human rights tribunal objecting to the prayer, which invariably commenced with the mayor intoning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, etc. And then there was a crucifix of Jesus, and they had an electrically illuminated sacred heart sitting in there, too. I think Robert Vaughn talked about this on an earlier show. Now, Quebec's uh, Court of Appeal uh, rule that the prayer expressed universal values and could not be identified with any particular religion. This would have been quite ridiculous enough, writes Kosh. I'm no scholar, but I'm reasonably sure that the Holy Trinity is strongly identified with a particular religion, and it ain't Shinto. The court, however, doubled down, adding gratuitously that the Sacred Heart and the Crucifix were works of art that were devoid of religious connotation, end quote. And he says this may sometimes be true, assuming that those items are found on heavy metal album covers or a skateboard deck. <laughs> the Supreme Court of Canada would have to play active, actively play dumb to endorse a ruling fraught with such contrivances. It appears that the wider public has equally sound instincts. The principle of the religious neutrality of the state is not just important for atheists, um, indeed, it is probably not even useful primarily to atheists. There's no cr uh, you know, credible statement so generic that it does not define and therefore exclude. The most innocuous religious nuances can sow infinite strife. It sounds as though Canadians are making an intelligent decision between having an officially Jesus-beseeching Jesus government and merely accepting that our civilization has Christian roots and folkways, which happily have included the dignity of the individual and the notions of charity and mercy. The whole point of signing or singing a national anthem is largely that it's the same anthem of a club of citizens. This gets back to the whole thing of fellowship again. The club still includes the dead members, or at least honors them, and the living are not the sole owners of the club's traditions. If you renovate an anthem's form too often in an effort to suit the times, the essence of the exercise is lost, he writes. And then he concludes, there isn't really any such thing as a generic prayer, one that covers Satanists and Hindus and Pentecostals with equal effectiveness. Only a Quebec court of appeal that was nervous about the possible consequences of unlimited militant secularism could be talked into asserting such a thing, let alone believing it. And that was from Colby Kosh. So, you know, what I see, you know, from what I see here and from what we covered on the show last week, ancient Greece seems to have evolved the conditions and the kind of stories, you know, the myths and legends it needed and used as religion that would actually meet some of the basic requirements of what I would call a religiously secular society. And... Um, Getting back to John McMurray, I know I've quoted part of this before, but it certainly has a bearing on our topic today. And he writes that, It is not the outward manifestations of religion which determine whether a society is religious or not. These may be merely part of its traditional structure, which persists through habit. 
or because of their political or economic value, and may have no relation to the actual nature of the personal relationships between its members by which it lives as a society, end quote. Now, this is exactly the phenomenon that's being observed today. Fewer and fewer people are finding any uh, you know, relevance of the established faith-based religions to their lives in the high-tech scientific world of today, particularly in the West. But McMurray continues, he says, in fact, the orthodox religious ritual of any society is always the symbol of this structure of personal relationships, which, by the way, was exactly the purpose of the ancient Greek myths. They were symbolic. They were not meant to be taken literally. And he writes, this explains why men, and, yeah, and I've read, and I know I've quoted this before because it's very interesting. This explains why men who have no religious interests but have large economic and other secular interests in maintaining the orthodox and traditional structure of their society can be relied on to rally to the defense of orthodox religion, while men of religious temper who are concerned to replace the traditional structure by a new one are apt to find themselves attacking the religion. And that's just how the character Elmo Donat, who was hoisted by his own petard in our Starship Troopers illustration, ended up acting. He was on the one side, had to switch right over. He was looking for change, not for religion. And writes uh, McMurray, the field of religious experience is the field of personal relationships. Reason is primarily practical. It is behavior that rationality, it is in behavior that rationality expresses itself. Religion, as the expression of rationality in the field of personal relationships, is primarily to be discovered in the behavior of men and women in relation to one another. So far as they treat one another as equals, and enter into relations as fellows, and there's that Tuvok character again, Mr. Fellowship, they are religious or rational. And it's funny how he equates those things in his framework when a lot of other people say, well, those two things are the very opposite. So, uh, you know, we've covered everything from personal relationships to ancient Greece to Greece uh, in today's economic frying pan to religious giant bugs and state and religion itself. Exactly what life and philosophy are all about. Just an average day on planet Earth. We'll be back after seven revolutions of the planet, not of Greece, hopefully, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Leonard, where do you come down on giant ants? <laughs> Sheldon says impossible. How and I say not only possible, but as a mode of transportation, way cooler than a Batmobile. You're ignoring the square cube law. The giant ant would be crushed under the weight of its own exoskeleton. And for the record, the appropriate ranking of cool modes of transportation is jetpack, hoverboard, transporter, Batmobile, and then giant ant.